Section thirty two, part three of Chapter eight of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone, Book one, Chapter eight, part three. Seventeen. Another branch of the king's ordinary revenue arises from escheats of land, which happened upon the defect of heirs to succeed to the inheritance, whereupon they in general revert to and vest in the king, who is esteemed, in the eye of the law, the original proprietor of all the lands in the kingdom. But the discussion of this topic more properly belongs to the second book of these commentaries, wherein we shall particularly consider the manner in which lands may be acquired or lost by escheat. 18. I proceed, therefore, to the eighteenth and last branch of the king's ordinary revenue, which consists in the custody of idiots, from whence we shall naturally lead to consider also the custody of lunatics. An idiot, or natural fool, is one that hath had no understanding from his nativity, and therefore is by law presumed never likely to attain any. For which reason the custody of him and of his lands was formerly vested in the lord of the fee, and therefore still, by special custom, in some manners the lord shall have the ordering of idiot and lunatic copyholders. But, by reason of the manifold abuses of this power by subjects, it was at last provided by common consent, that it should be given to the king, as the general conservator of his people, in order to prevent the idiot from wasting his estate, and reducing himself and his heirs to poverty and distress. This fiscal prerogative of the king is declared in Parliament by statute 17th Edward II, c. 9, which directs, in affirmance of the common law, that the king shall have ward of the lands of natural fools, taking the profits without waste or destruction, and shall find them necessaries, and after the death of such idiots he shall render the estate to the heirs, in order to prevent such idiots from alienating their lands, and their heirs from being disinherited. By the old common law there is a writ de idiota inquirendo to inquire whether a man be an idiot or not, which must be tried by a jury of twelve men, and if they find him purus idiota, the profits of his land and the custody of his person may be granted by the king to some subject, who has interest enough to obtain them. This branch of the revenue hath been long considered as a hardship upon private families, and so long ago as in the eighth James I, it was under the consideration of Parliament to vest this custody in the relations of the party, and to settle an equivalent on the crown in lieu of it, it being then proposed to share the same fate with the slavery of the feudal tenures, which has been since abolished. Yet few instances can be given of the oppressive exertion of it, since it seldom happens that a jury finds a man an idiot a natavitate, but only non compos mentis from some particular time, which has an operation very different point of law. A man is not an idiot if he hath any glimmering of reason, so that he can tell his parents, his age, or the like common matters. But a man who is born deaf, dumb, and blind is looked upon by the law as in the same state with an idiot, he being supposed incapable of understanding, as wanting those senses which furnish the human mind with ideas. A lunatic, or non mentis is one who hath had understanding, but by disease, grief, or other accident hath lost the use of his reason. A lunatic is indeed properly one that hath lucid intervals, sometimes enjoying his senses, and sometimes not, and that frequently depending upon the change of the moon. But under the general name of non mentis, 
which Sir Edward Coke says is the most legal name, are comprised not only lunatics, but persons under frenzies, or who lose their intellects by disease, those that grow deaf, dumb, and blind, not being born so, or such, in short, as are by any means rendered incapable of conducting their own affairs. To these also, as well as idiots, the king is guardian, but to a very different purpose. For the law always imagines that these accidental misfortunes may be removed, and therefore only constitutes the crown a trustee for the unfortunate persons, to protect their property, and to account to them for all profits received, if they recover, or after their decease to their representatives. And therefore it is declared by the statute, 17th Edward II, c. 10, that the king shall provide for the custody and sustentations of lunatics, and preserve their lands and the profits of them for their use, when they come to their right mind, and the king shall take nothing to his own use, and if the parties die in such a state, the residue shall be distributed for their souls by the advice of the ordinary, and, of course, by the subsequent amendments of the law of administrations, shall now go to their executors or administrators. The method of proving a person non compos is very similar to that of proving him an idiot. The Lord Chancellor, to whom, by special authority from the king, the custody of idiots and lunatics is entrusted, upon petition or information, grants a commission, in nature of the writ de idiotia in Corendo, to inquire into the party's state of mind, and if he be found non compos, he usually commits the care of this person, with a suitable allowance for his maintenance, to some friend, who is then called his committee. However, to prevent sinister practices, the next heir is never permitted to be this committee of the person, because it is his interest that the party should die. But, it hath been said, there lies not the same objection against his next of kin, provided he be not his heir, for it is his interest to preserve the lunatic's life, in order to increase the personal estate by savings, which he or his family may hereafter be entitled to enjoy. The heir is generally made the manager or committee of the estate, it being clearly his interest by good management to keep it in condition, accountable, however, to the court of chancery, and to the non-compos himself, if he recovers, or otherwise, to his administrators. In this care of idiots and lunatics the civil law agrees with ours, by assigning them tutors to protect their persons, and curators to manage their estates. But in another instance the Roman law goes much beyond the English. For if a man by notorious prodigality was in danger of wasting his estate, he was looked upon as non compos, and committed to the care of curators or tutors by the praetor. And by the laws of Solon such prodigals were branded with perpetual infamy. But with us, when a man on an inquest of idiocy hath been returned an unthrift and not an idiot, no farther proceedings have been had. And the propriety of the practice itself seems to be very questionable. It was doubtless an excellent method of benefiting the individual, and of preserving estates and families, but it hardly seems calculated for the genius of a free nation, who claim and exercise the liberty of using their own property as they please. Sic utere tuo, et alienum non laedus, is the only restriction our laws have given with regard to economical prudence. And the frequent circulation and transfer of lands and other property, which cannot be effected without extravagance somewhere, are perhaps not a little conducive towards keeping our mixed constitution in its due health and vigour. This may suffice for a short view of the king's ordinary revenue, or the proper patrimony of the crown, which was very large formerly, and capable of being increased to a magnitude truly formidable, for there are very few estates in the kingdom, 
that have not, at some period or other since the Norman conquest, been vested in the hands of the king by forfeiture, a cheat, or otherwise. But fortunately for the liberty of the subject, this hereditary landed revenue, by a series of improvident management, is sunk almost to nothing, and the casual profits, arising from the other branches of the census regulus, are likewise almost all of them alienated from the crown. In order to supply the deficiencies of which, we are now obliged to have recourse to new methods of raising money, unknown to our early ancestors, which methods constitute the king's extraordinary revenue. For, the public patrimony being got into the hands of private subjects, it is but reasonable that private contributions should supply the public service which, though it may perhaps fall harder upon some individuals, whose ancestors have had no share in the general plunder, than upon others, yet taking the nation throughout, it amounts to nearly the same, provided the gain by the extraordinary should appear to be no greater than the loss by the ordinary revenue. And perhaps, if every gentleman in the kingdom was to be stripped of such lands as were formerly the property of the crown, was to be again subject to the inconveniences of purveyance and preemption, the oppression of forest laws, and the slavery of feudal tenures, and was to resign into the king's hands all his royal franchise of waifs, wrecks, strays, treasure-trove, mines, deodens, forfeitures, and the like, he would find himself a greater loser, than by paying his quota to such taxes as are necessary to the support of government. The thing, therefore, to be wished and aimed at in a land of liberty, is by no means the total abolition of taxes, which would draw after it very pernicious consequences, and the very supposition of which is at the height of political absurdity. For, as the true idea of government and magistracy will be found to consist in this, that some few men are deputed by many others to preside over public affairs, so that individuals may the better be enabled to attend to their private concerns, it is necessary that those individuals should be bound to contribute a portion of their private gains, in order to support that government, and reward that magistracy, which protects them in the enjoyment of their respective properties. But the things to be aimed at are wisdom and moderation, not only in granting, but also in the method of raising the necessary supplies, by contriving to do both in such a manner as may be the most conducive to the national welfare, and at the same time most consistent with economy and the liberty of the subject, who, when properly taxed, contributes only, as was before observed, some part of his property, in order to enjoy the rest." These extraordinary grants are usually called by the synonymous names of aids, subsidies, and supplies, and are granted, we have formerly seen, by the commons of Great Britain, in Parliament assembled, who, when they have voted a supply to His Majesty, and settled the quantum of that supply, usually resolve themselves into what is called a Committee of Ways and Means, to consider of the ways and means of raising the supply so voted. And in this committee every member, though it is looked upon as the peculiar province of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, may propose such scheme of taxation as he thinks will be least detrimental to the public. The resolutions of this committee, when approved by a vote of the House, are in general esteemed to be, as it were, final and conclusive. For, though the supply cannot be actually raised upon the subject till directed by an act of the whole Parliament, yet no moneyed man will scruple to advance to the government any quantity of ready cash, on the credit of a bare vote of the House of Commons, though no law be yet passed to establish it. The taxes which are raised upon the subject are either annual or perpetual. The usual annual taxes are those upon land and malt. 1. 
The land tax, in its modern shape, has superseded all the former methods of rating either property, or persons, in respect of their property, whether by tenths or fifteenths, subsidies on land, by hideges, scutages, or taliages, a short explication of which will greatly assist us in understanding our ancient laws and history. Tenths and fifteenths were temporary aids issuing out of personal property, and granted to the king by Parliament. They were formerly the real tenth or fifteenth part of all the movables belonging to the subject, when such movables, or personal estates, were a very different and much less considerable thing than what they usually are at this day. Tenths are said to have been first granted under Henry the Second, who took advantage of the fashionable zeal for crusades to introduce this new taxation, in order to defray the expense of a pious expedition to Palestine, which he really or seemingly had projected against Saladin, emperor of the Saracens, whence it was originally denominated the Saladin Tenth. But afterwards fifteenths were more usually granted than tenths. Originally the amount of these taxes was uncertain, being levied by assessments new made at each fresh grant of the commons, a commission for which is preserved by Matthew Paris, but it was at length reduced to a certainty in the eighth of Edward the Third, when, by virtue of the king's commission, new taxations were made of every township, borough, and city in the kingdom, and recorded in the exchequer, which rate was, at the time, the fifteenth part of the value of every township, the whole amounting to about twenty-nine thousand pounds, and therefore it still kept up the name of a fifteenth, when, by the alteration of the value of money and the increase of personal property, things came to be in a very different situation. So that when, of later years, the commons granted the king a fifteenth, every parish in England immediately knew their proportion of it, that is, the same identical sum that was assessed by the same aid of the eighth of Edward the Third, and then raised it by a rate among themselves, and returned it into the royal exchequer. The other ancient laws were in the nature of a modern land tax, for we may trace up the original of that charge as high as to the introduction of our military tenures, when every tenant of a knight's fee was bound, if called upon, to attend the king and his army for forty days in every year. But this personal attendance growing troublesome in many respects, the tenants found means of compounding for it, by first sending others in their stead, and in process of time making a pecuniary satisfaction to the crown in lieu of it. This pecuniary satisfaction at last came to be levied by assessments, at so much for every knight's fee, under the name of scutages, which appear to have been levied for the first time in the fifth year of Henry the Second, on account of his expedition to Toulouse, and were then, I apprehend, mere arbitrary compositions, as the king and the subject could agree. But this president, being afterwards abused into a means of oppression, by levying scutages on the landholders by the royal authority only, whenever our kings went to war, in order to hire mercenary troops and pay their contingent expenses, it became thereupon a matter of national complaint, and King John was obliged to promise, in his Magna Carta, that no scutage should be imposed without the consent of the common council of the realm. This clause was indeed omitted in the charters of Henry the Third, where we only find it stipulated that scutages should be taken as they were used to be in the time of King Henry the Second. Yet afterwards, by a variety of statutes under Edward I and his grandson, it was provided that the king shall not take any aids or tasks, any talliage or tax, but by the common assent of the great men and commons in Parliament. Of the same nature with scutages upon knights' fees were the assessments of hideage on all other lands, and of talliage upon cities and boroughs. 
but they all gradually fell into disuse, upon the introduction of subsidies, about the time of King Richard II and King Henry IV. These were attacks not immediately imposed upon property, but upon persons in respect of their reputed estates, after the nominal rate of four shillings in the pound for lands, and two shillings sixpence for goods, and for those of aliens in a double proportion. But this assessment was also made according to an ancient valuation, wherein the computation was so very moderate, and the rental of the kingdom was supposed to be so exceedingly low, that one subsidy of this sort did not, according to Sir Edward Coke, amount to more than seven hundred thousand pounds, whereas a modern land tax at the same rate produces two millions. It was anciently the rule never to grant more than one subsidy, and two fifteenths at a time, but this rule was broke through for the first time on a very pressing occasion, the Spanish invasion in 1588, when the Parliament gave Elizabeth two subsidies and four fifteenths. Afterwards, as money sunk in value, more subsidies were given, and we have an instance in the first Parliament of 1640 of the King's desiring twelve subsidies of the Commons to be levied in three years, which was looked upon as a startling proposal, though Lord Clarendon tells us that the Speaker, Sergeant Glanville, made it manifest to the House how very inconsiderable a sum twelve subsidies amounted to, by telling them he had computed what he was to pay for them, and when he named the sum, he being known to be possessed of a great estate, it seemed not worth any further deliberation. And, indeed, upon calculation, we shall find that the total amount of these twelve subsidies, to be raised in three years, is less than what is now raised in one year, by a land tax of two shillings in the pound. The grant of scutages, talliages, or subsidies by the commons did not extend to spiritual preferments, those being usually taxed at the same time by the clergy themselves in convocation, which grants of the clergy were confirmed in Parliament, otherwise they were illegal and not binding, as the same noble writer observes of the subsidies granted by the convocation, who continued sitting after the dissolution of the first Parliament in 1640. A subsidy granted by the clergy was after the rate of four shillings in the pound, according to the valuation of their livings in the king's books, and amounted, Sir Edward Coke tells us, to about twenty thousand pounds. While this custom continued, convocations were wont to sit as frequently as parliaments, but the last subsidies, thus given by the clergy, were those confirmed by statute 15th Charles II, Cap. 10. Since which, another method of taxation has generally prevailed, which takes in the clergy as well as the laity, in recompense for which the beneficed clergy have, from that period, been allowed to vote at the elections of knights of the shire, and thenceforward, also, the practice of giving ecclesiastical subsidies hath fallen into total disuse. The lay subsidy was usually raised by commissioners appointed by the Crown, or the great officers of state, and therefore, in the beginning of the civil wars between Charles I and his Parliament, the latter, having no other sufficient revenue to support themselves and their measures, introduced the practice of laying weekly and monthly assessments of a specific sum upon the several counties of the kingdom, to be levied by a pound-rate on lands and personal estates, which were occasionally continued during the whole usurpation, sometimes at the rate of one hundred and twenty pounds a month, sometimes at inferior rates. After the restoration the ancient method of granting subsidies, instead of such monthly assessments, was twice and twice only renewed, viz. in 1663, when four subsidies were granted by the temporality and four by the clergy, and in 1670, when eight hundred thousand pounds was raised by way of a subsidy, which was the last time of raising supplies in that manner. 
4. The monthly assessments being now established by custom, being raised by commissioners named by Parliament, and producing a more certain revenue, from that time forwards we hear no more of subsidies, but occasional assessments were granted as the national emergencies required. These periodical assessments, the subsidies which preceded them, and the more ancient scuttage, hydage, and telliage, were to all intents and purposes a land tax, and the assessments were sometimes expressly called so. Yet a popular opinion has prevailed that the land tax was first introduced in the reign of King William Third, because in the year 1692 a new assessment or valuation of estates was made throughout the kingdom, which, though by no means a perfect one, had this effect, that a supply of five hundred thousand pounds was equal to one shilling in the pound of the value of the estates given in. And according to this enhanced valuation, from the year 1693 to the present, a period of above seventy years, the land tax has continued an annual charge upon the subject, above half the time at four shillings in the pound, sometimes at three shillings, sometimes at two shillings, twice at one shilling, but without any total intermission. The medium has been three shillings threepence in the pound, being equivalent to twenty-three ancient subsidies, and amounting annually to more than a million and a half of money. The method of raising it is by charging a particular sum upon each county, according to the valuation given in A.D. 1692, and this sum is assessed and raised upon individuals, their personal estates, as well as real, being liable thereto, by commissioners appointed in the act, being the principal landholders of the county and their officers. 2. The other tax is the malt tax, which is a sum of £750,000, raised every year by Parliament, ever since 1697, by a duty of sixpence in the bushel on malt, and a proportionable sum on certain liquors, such as cider and perry, which might otherwise prevent the consumption of malt. This is under the management of the commissioners of the excise, and is indeed itself no other than an annual excise, the nature of which species of taxation I shall presently explain, only premising at present that in the year 1760 an additional perpetual excise of threepence per bushel was laid upon malt, and in 1763 a proportionable excise was laid upon cider and perry. End of section 32